Hello, and welcome to the introduction to First World War poetry. We'll think a little bit about the transition from the Victorian period to the 20th century before exploring the First World War, which is the context that shapes the poetry of Rupert Brooke, Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen. Queen Victoria died on January the 22nd, 1901, and was succeeded by her playboy son, Edward VII. We named the first decade of the 20th century Edwardian after him. Though the morals of Edward were considerably looser than those of his mother, little apparently changed in this transition from the Victorian to the Edwardian period. Britain's class structure was still strict and hierarchical, while despite progress at the end of the 19th century, women still lacked key legal rights, such as the right to vote, despite the best efforts of the suffragettes. Under the surface, however, rapid technological and social change was continuing to accelerate. Electricity was becoming commonplace, including the life-changing invention of electric light. Movie theatres were beginning to open and radio was used commercially for the first time. In 1903, the Wright brothers flew the first aeroplane in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, while Henry Ford began selling the Model T in 1913, which was the first mass-produced car. Meanwhile, developments in science, psychology and philosophy were destabilising life's old certainties. Physicists Max Planck and Albert Einstein challenged existing understandings of the universe. Psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud undermined our certainties about the self, while philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche questioned assumptions about the nature of truth and the existence of God. The rapid changes of the Victorian era had provoked anxiety, doubt and pessimism in writers and artists. The accelerating, destabilising transformations of the early 20th century resulted in an alienation of writers and artists from society, a trend that built on aestheticism's separation of life and art. In our readings over the next two weeks, we'll encounter writers trying to make sense of an unsettling reality by remaking literature and finding new ways to convey human experience and understanding of the world through poetry and fiction. We're beginning with First World War poetry. If the Edwardian period had seemed, on the surface, a stable continuity of the Victorian era, the First World War violently demonstrated how much the world had changed. Importantly, this war was the first industrialised, fully mechanised war. Technological developments such as the machine gun, heavy artillery, the tank, resulted in the horrors of trench warfare and a sense of stalemate. The war involved all the major European nations, including Britain, France, Russia, Italy, Germany and Austria. It was fought on two fronts, the Western and the Eastern Front. When it began in August 1914, it was commonly believed that it would be, quote, over by Christmas. In fact, the war lasted four and a half years until November 1918. The First World War resulted in 8,700,000 deaths, including 708,000 British, which was nearly 2% of Britain's population at the time. Casualties were so high partly because governments, like the British government, had adopted a policy of attrition. They were prepared to accept very high rates of death because they believed that the side that could sustain the heaviest casualties would win the war. 
As casualties mounted, however, the early patriotic fervour of the British population for the war waned. Even the notoriously jingoistic author Rudyard Kipling came to question the war after the death of his son. Writing in his short poem, Common Form, If any asked why we died, tell them because our fathers lied. This poem is particularly poignant once we learn that Kipling's son had been rejected by the army because of his extreme short-sightedness. Kipling himself had used his influence to get his son in the army. John Kipling was killed only six weeks after his 18th birthday. The First World War resulted in an extraordinary literary flourishing, as writers used poetry especially to make sense of their experiences and to convey them to the audience back home. We're reading examples by three poets, Rupert Brooke, Sifu Sassoon and Wilfred Owen, but we might have read work by Avra Gurney, Robert Graves, Edward Blunden, Isaac Rosenberg, Vera Britton and others. Rupert Brooke's poem The Soldier is part of a sequence of five war sonnets written in December 1914. This poem is part of the Georgian tradition of poetry, which is a tradition named after George V. Usually dated from 1910 to 1914, Georgian poetry presents idyllic images of the English countryside, such as those we see in the second stanza of Brooke's poem. Importantly, this poem was written early in the war. Its patriotism is undimmed, and its presentation of the death of a soldier is highly idealised. And it's hard not to contrast this poem's vision of death with Brooke's own. He died of dysentery and blood poisoning on board a ship headed for Gallipoli. The poems of Sassoon and Owen offer us quite a different perspective on this war. And it's not surprising that the rear guard and Dulcet Decorum Est were written later than the soldier, at a point when early enthusiasm for the war had turned to bitterness and to anger. Gone is any idealism about the experience of soldiers. These poems shock us with their visceral images and descriptions of life on the front line. Siegfried Sassoon had been a very successful soldier, even earning a military cross. However, as the war continued, he became increasingly disillusioned. In 1917, he wrote to his commanding officer, I am making this statement as an act of willful defiance of military authority because I believe that the war is being deliberately prolonged by those who have the power to end it. When Sassoon made this letter public, the military authorities decided to send him to Craig Lockhart War Hospital in Edinburgh, claiming he was suffering from shell shock, what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder. Refusing to recognise that a decorated soldier might protest the handling of the war, the military authorities preferred to claim that Sassoon was mentally ill. This decision may not have changed Sassoon's attitude to the war, but it did change the course of another poet's career, Wilfred Owen, who had also been sent to Craig Lockhart Hospital, suffering, in this case, genuinely, shell shock. Together, Sassoon and Owen worked on the literary magazine Hydra, which was created by patients at the war hospital. The older man, Sassoon, not only encouraged Owen's poetry, he also helped Owen develop a new, more realistic poetic style. In the poetry of both Sassoon and Owen, we'll see vivid descriptions of the horror of trench life. But these poems don't just communicate the horrors of war to an audience at home. Importantly, poetry was also used as a form of therapy at Craig Lockhart War Hospital. 
specifically to cure shell shock. As critic Meredith Martin has argued, trauma can be understood as a temporal breakdown. Doctors at the war hospital witness patients apparently unable to move beyond their moment of trauma. For many patients, time's collapse manifested as an inability to control their speech. Many men developed stutters, some even lost their speech entirely. Poetry was thought to be particularly valuable because poetic metre requires the ordering of language through time. If you look at Owen's poem, you'll see that the metre frequently breaks down, which we could read as the product of trauma or as a way of expressing trauma in poetic form. But we can also understand this breakdown as evidence of the First World War poet's increasing suspicion of older poetic forms. A suspicion that aligns with their suspicion of old social forms and orders more generally. As Kipling's poem suggests, there was a sense in this war that the old had betrayed the young. The 28-line Dulcet Decorum Est can be understood, for example, as two sonnets bent double, and we might recognise Owen and Sassoon as writers driven to remake literary forms in order to understand and to represent a horrifying new modern reality. Sassoon survived the war, though his later work never quite lived up to his First World War poetry. Owen returned to the front lines in August 1918 and was killed tragically in action one week before the war ended. All right, thank you for listening as always. I'm really interested in your responses to these poems. Thanks, bye-bye. Hello and welcome to the introduction to W.B. Yeats, one of the most important poets of the early 20th century. Yeats's own influences are multiple. He was influenced by the Romantic poets, by mysticism and spiritualism, and by Irish cultural heritage. In turn, he was highly influential as a poet of modernism and of Irish nationalism. We're going to think about modernism in detail next week when we explore the works of Virginia Woolf and Catherine Mansfield. So our focus this week on Yeats is as a poet of Irish nationalism, as we think about the relationship between art and politics in his work. To do this, we need to begin with Yeats's identity. Like Jonathan Swift and Oscar Wilde, Yeats was descended from a colonial class of Protestant English landowners who arrived in Ireland in the mid-17th century, who were known as the Anglo-Irish or the Anglo-Irish Ascendancy. This small section of Ireland's population, only around 5%, ruled over the country's Catholic majority for about 400 years. Members of the Anglo-Irish community often exhibit a kind of dual or double consciousness. On the one hand, they ruled over Ireland's indigenous Catholic majority, but on the other hand, they were ruled in their turn by the English from London. As such, writers like Swift, Wilde and Yeats experience forms of power and powerlessness simultaneously. This dual perspective of the Anglo-Irish is especially significant because the relationship between Ireland and Great Britain, especially England, was never amicable. While Scotland formed a political union with England in 1707, Ireland's history is much more clearly one of military occupation and conquest, with English forces occupying Ireland in some form or other from around the 12th century. In the 17th century, Scottish and English settlers set up plantations in Ireland, 
in an unambiguous act of colonisation. Ireland entered into a formal union with Great Britain in 1901, but there were soon calls for greater independence from Ireland. The Irish Home Rule movement gathered momentum throughout the 19th century, especially following the devastating potato famine of the 1840s, which saw Ireland lose nearly a quarter of its population to starvation and emigration. Britain's Houses of Parliament finally passed the Home Rule Bill in 1912. This bill allowed Ireland self-government within Britain. However, the outbreak of the First World War in 1914 meant that this bill was not put into practice. Frustrated by a lack of progress, a group of Irish Republicans attempted to seize power in Dublin in Easter 1916. Britain responded harshly to the uprising and executed 15 of the leaders, inadvertently making martyrs of them by doing so. Outrage at the execution changed opinion in Ireland, prompting many to demand full independence from Britain. There was a violent guerrilla war, which led eventually to Ireland signing a treaty with Britain which allowed for limited Irish independence and split Ireland into the Irish Free Street and Northern Ireland. It's against this background that we need to understand Yeats's career and the two poems we're reading this week, The Lake Isle of Innisfree and Easter 1916. Though Yeats was initially resistant to political uses of literature, he was deeply invested in Irish cultural nationalism from the beginning of his career, founding the National Literary Society in Dublin in 1892, for example. And even an early poem, like The Lake Isle of Innisfree, which bears an unmistakable romantic influence, can be understood as an assertion of Irish identity. Its very title, for example, speaks to Ireland's history of linguistic colonisation. During the 19th century, Britain had systematically attempted to wipe out the Irish language. Even Irish place names were anglicised, as the spelling of Innisfree in this poem's title illustrates. Innisfree literally means Heather Island in Irish Gaelic. And it's the name of a small island near Sligo, where Yeats spent much of his childhood and where his mother came from. Yeats's use of the anglicised spelling directly invokes this history of colonisation, much as his choice to write in English itself also does. But importantly, we also see Yeats's poem using this history of anglicisation and colonisation against itself. The anglicised spelling of free also, of course, connotes the idea of freedom, put together with Innis, which means island, we see the idea of a free island or free Ireland signalled in the poem's title. In contrast to the cultural nationalism of the Lake Isle of Innis Free, Easter 1916 explicitly engages with Ireland's politics and especially its struggle for independence which speaks to a shift in Yeats's poetry in the early 20th century as he moves from an emphasis on a mythic version of Ireland to modern Ireland itself. Easter 1916 is an example of an occasional poem. That is one which marks, quote, particular events of a public character, a coronation, a military victory, a death, a political crisis. Such poems are so social and ceremonial, they are public and formal. And the particular event marked by this poem is, of course, the Easter 1916 uprising. But the poem's not straightforward. It explores Yeats's ambivalent attitude to the Irish 
revolutionaries. As a member of the Anglo-Irish ascendancy, Yeats belonged to a class whose loyalties had traditionally been split between England and Ireland. As a member of Ireland's Protestant minority, he also belonged to a different religious denomination from most of the Irish revolutionaries. Compounding these factors were his fraught personal relationship with some of them, especially John McBride, who had married and then mistreated Maud Gone, the woman that Yeats had been in love with for many years. And while the revolutionaries sought independence for Ireland, Yeats had long hoped to bring unity to the country. The poem questions the intense political commitment of the revolutionaries, worrying that, quote, too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart, and suggesting that the revolutionaries' actions might have been unnecessary, quote, for England may keep faith for all that is done and said. Despite how, such ambivalence, however, the poem recognises that Ireland has been changed, changed utterly by the events of 1916, concluding that a terrible beauty is born. This oxymoron is perhaps the most famous line of the poem, and it's something we're going to explore on the discussion board this week. But whatever the poem's doubts, it does undoubtedly bear witness to the sacrifice of the revolutionaries. So besides writing out their names in verse, it even commemorates them through its form. The poem consists of four stanzas, two of 16 lines, two of 24 lines. And these numbers, 4, 16, 24, formally memorialise the date of the Easter Rising, which took place on April the 24th, 1916. Well, that's our brief introduction to Yeats. I'm really looking forward to finding out what you think about his poetry. Thanks, as always, for listening. Bye-bye.